2: is king. Corn markets are the biggest agricultural market, both in terms of tonnage as well as dollar amount in the world. And here to tell us what to expect from this market is Sal Gil- Gilberti, President, Chief Exe- uh, Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder of Two Cream Trading LLC, as well as Mike McLone, Commodity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Sal, I want to start with you. Uh, you noted something uh, pretty amazing to me, that even as uh, demand Increases from ethanol and uh, just globally. Corn prices are around $3.50 a bushel, which means corn prices are again at or below perceived cost of production. Does that mean that farmers have to raise prices, Sal?
3: Well, it means the market has to raise prices. Farmers really don't control the price unless they stop planting, and in a way, so indirectly, they can control the price. What we've seen is in the past 10 years, two times corn has been at this level 350 or below spot corn and the price has doubled to over $7 that happened in the 2007 2008 crop year and again in 2010 to 2011 usage continues to rise demand is always rising for corn corn touches every part of your life it's like oil and when oil you know goes below the cost of production money tends to to be attracted there corn is once again at that 350 level in spot. We, we can't say when for sure there will be a supply disruption. We know that it is very unlikely that there will be a demand disruption. So corn's, corn may be a big opportunity here. Uh, Mike
1: McGlone, I want you to come in on this because uh, you know there's only so much acreage out there and farmers have to decide what to plant. And sometimes they say, mm, I'm not gonna plant corn, I'm gonna plant soybeans. Uh, why do they make those decisions and what are they deciding right now?
4: One reason, money, um, revenue. <clears throat> and that's a key factor that's happening right now is there's, uh, I, I'm looking at my screen, the USD estimates for corn revenue for this year, are uh, average acre is going to lose $90 per acre, yet they're still breaking even in, in soybeans. So they're going to plant more soybeans. So probably the first time in history we're going to see much more soybeans planted in corn. The key factor there is it's an indication that U.S. grain production is peaked, which is a very profound statement because we heard about a you know, great year again this year. But from a typical acre of... Of land, You get maybe four metric tons of corn, but for soybeans, it's about one. So the total production will continue to decline It's very likely to continue to decline as farmers chase profits and plant more beans and less corn. And that's probably it's an unsustainable trend until prices generally adjust to make a difference.
2: I, I, Sal, I'd like to, to get your sense of why farmers are planting more soybeans at this point when I don't I mean, I love tofu, we were talking earlier that you like tofu too, but that's not much driving this, is it?
3: No, it's not. In fact, the <laughs> demand for soybeans is is so enormous from China and China. Uh, we saw them buy, I think, Smithfield. They they are consuming more pork, more animal-based proteins. They are importing all the soybeans they can find from any source in the world in order to feed their animals. Remember, the number one use of grains is to feed the animals that we as humans eat. And so we might like to eat a lot of tofu, but the real consumption. <laughs> Is, is is for animals.
2: Okay, so let's build on that. I mean, what, at what price point uh, would farmers be incentivized to plant more corn?
3: Well, they, they look at a ratio, and so they, they look at their inputs and their costs, and they look at what will make them more, either you know, 175 bushels of corn or 50 or so bushels of, of soybeans. One or the other is going to come off of that same acre. Importantly, though, for sustainability issues, it's really important. Corn draws nitrogen out of the soil, and farmers think about this all the time soybeans put it back in and so there's something called crop rotation where it's really advisable for a farmer who can supplement with with artificial fertilizers but the best thing that farmer can do for his soil is once in a while when he's got a choice switch back to soybeans because it 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 improves the general health of his farm
1: uh mike uh, one of the things i want you to speak about though is what they're facing in terms of fuel costs right now with uh with farmers because i don't get this uh the United States is producing more oil and more natural gas than anybody can remember, and yet supplies for farmers are kind of getting squeezed. What's up? What's up with that? One word: exports. A key factor in in the
4: U.S., I think the U.S. commodity mar- market right now, most notably energy, is we can export now. We have a declining dollar. We had restrictions a few years ago. Those are gone. So if there's a better market overseas and there's more money to be made, there's plenty of exports. So that is a key factor is cost of costs for farmers are increasing because petroleum costs, drying costs for corn are increasing. But exports, that's also a key factor in grains, and it just hasn't happened yet. So we've seen a bottom in – Crude oil, it bottomed, in, what, it's rallied like 100% from the lows for years ago. We haven't seen that in the grain yet, and that's what it's probably going to happen in a key driver's exports. So, if we have a continued weak dollar, unless there's some kind of trade, res- trade restrictions, it's almost inevitable this substantial paradigm shift and in big increase in U.S. exports should boost the price of U.S. traded corn, soybeans, and potentially wheat.
2: Sal, uh, you were talking earlier about that ratio uh, of corn to soybeans. Where are we now? What's it saying?
3: Um, It's telling farmers to plant soybeans. Um, It it was telling them a couple weeks ago to plant a lot more soybeans. Right now it's coming back into line because people are starting to suspect, like Mike is predicting, that they will plant more soybeans versus corn. And again – You're going to get 50 bushels of soybeans off an acre, or you're going to get 175 corn. That's a big difference if you switch to soybeans.
2: So how much could you see uh, corn prices rise? They're at about $3.50 a bushel right now. Where are they going to go by this time next year?
3: There's no telling. I can tell you that this is the midst of the corn harvest seasonal. So more corn is is in a big pile than than there will be for the rest of the year. And so that generally creates a seasonal low. Um, So you you can see a a slow trickle upward of price for the next six months until the, the next planting season becomes clear. But again, twice in the last 10 years, corn prices have doubled from the price that they're at right now.
1: Well, I'm just looking at your ETF, right? Uh, corn, uh, the two mm-hmm. cream corn ETF, trading at about 16 and a half bucks uh, a share. Mm-hmm. It was as high as almost 20 in July.
3: It was, and you've you've seen this relentless bear market with these these supplies of corn. But now the the harvest is over, and again, our fund wasn't around for both of those doubling prices, but it was for the one in twenty ten, and you know the, the fund did perform quite well. It, I think it went from the mid twenties to the very low fifties.
2: Mike, what's the best way for investors to uh, to trade? Corn.
4: Well, they- I, I have to admit, when I look at a lot of the products, and sell loves when I do this, I go to soybeans, partly because historically you can invest in soybean and soybean products and you don't have that massive cost of carry. Now, you might not get the performance right away, but that's one of the issues in commodities is you have a cost of carry. Soybeans are very easy to store and very inexpensive to store, so that generally you don't have that rolling futures cost, i.e. a contango. In corn, you have it's a little more expensive, but you know that's just you have a different type of market. So I look at soybeans as a longer term hold. It depends on, on where you are, but overall at certain pl- key levels, like um, Sal mentioned here, the, the risk is that we trickle down or. We Double in price over the next few years is the kind of way I look at it. And a little bit of a, a weather event will do that, and I'm not predicting that, but just these demand versus supply trends imply prices t- probably need to increase or
1: exports will make them increase. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us and enlightening us about the world of commodities. Uh, Sal Giberty is the president and the chief investment officer and co-founder of uh, Tucrium Trading. And I'm just looking at his soybean ETF. Uh, A gain of about 4.3% since uh, August. Thanks very much. Mike McGlone, our commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg. to help us understand what's going on in the bond market is Tad Revell. He is the chief investment officer of TCW, helping to manage more than $200 billion based in Los Angeles. Tad, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, I wonder if you could just begin by telling people who was Sir Thomas Gresham, why does it matter, and maybe tell us how that connects with the United States and the fact that we don't use silver in any of our money.
5: (laughs) That is a it is a bit of an obscure reference, but I think actually many people are familiar with the uh, the term Gresham's law. so uh, Gresham was actually an advisor to uh, the court of uh, King Henry VIII, the a financial advisor and uh, he put forth the observation that uh, bad money drives out good money and what he meant by that is that if there were or the observation was that if you have two identical Uh, face value type currencies, let's say gold coins, silver coins, copper coins, um, people will essentially take the gold coins and put them in their drawer and uh, utilize the copper coins to facilitate the circulation. Um, In the case of the American experience, coinage was uh, silver until uh, 1964. Congress changed the law, and beginning in 1965, when other metals, base metals, were, were used, all the silver coins basically disappeared. So uh, Gresham's Law is kind of an interesting insight into uh, to human nature that actually most people are probably pretty familiar with, even if no one really knows um, the, uh, the origins of the term.
2: Well, so, so connecting it to, to now and to markets, the idea being that we've seen this incredible run-up in equities and in riskier assets uh, in the debt market, as well as, frankly, safe assets. We've seen a run-up in absolutely everything, and people are chasing the rally by pouring more money in. Is the implication here that we are on the precipice of a turning point, that this is bad money going into the market right now?
5: I think that that's a that's a good metaphor for uh for the point, which is that uh, investors I think are always counseled um to be disciplined in their approach to uh, not overpaying for assets to taking a long term approach. But what does happen late in the cycle is the phenomenon that you alluded to, which is that there is money that is hungry for for yield and income and at some point is willing to pretty much underwrite any risk in exchange for the income right the result is that you get assets of all sorts uh... those worthy and those less so that get bit up in price and in effect it becomes an example of gresham's law of investing in which basically the bad underwriting um... the money that is just far too willing to uh... sponsor risk starts to drive out the good money and the good underwriting that which is more disciplined, and it creates a uh, a point of cognitive dissonance for people because you sit on the sidelines if you're disciplined, and you say, "I just don't understand. Everybody else seems to be making money, and I'm sitting this out. Is this really the the right strategy for for me?" Uh, that I should take. And historically, actually, it it is, even though it doesn't feel that way in real time.
6: So
2: uh, given given that sort of backdrop, is TCW moving more money uh, in its fixed income portfolios to cash? Is it uh, taking money out of certain markets? And if so, which ones?
5: Well, the way we think about it, or the way we express it, is that you should think in terms of in, in terms of fixed income. You should think about bendable assets and breakable assets. And by that, what we mean is that a breakable asset is essentially an asset. In the case of a bond, where you're going to uh, ultimately suffer a loss of principal, um, it will not recover uh, or, or represent an economically viable asset. A bendable asset is an asset that will we believe ultimately uh, provide full recovery of principal, but the use of the term "bendable" is meant to remind us all that that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be ups and downs in market-related type volatility. So, so what, what? What? Yeah, so right. What's bra- so well, what's, so what's bendable-, bendable
2: and what's breakable? Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, uh, just as a. Large generalization, uh, the kinds of assets that you should think of as being bendable that are appropriate late in the cycle, where we think we are, are things like investment-grade corporate bonds, um, top-of-the-capital structure type of investments in some of the securitized uh, credit areas, so those would include uh, typically AAA-rated commercial-backed mortgage-backed securities, they would include programs such as the uh, the FELP, uh student loan program which basically is government guaranteed full-faith and credit obligations uh, uh, student loans they would include uh, agency mortgages and then that begs the question so what would be breakable well um, that of course is the rub of it which is that you need to pre-identify that which will be breakable before you essentially get into the end of the cycle when markets tend to be absolutely unforgiving Traditionally, you will see breakable assets in such asset classes as uh, high-yield securities, below investment grade, you'll oftentimes see them in emerging markets, and you'll typically see them down the capital structure in some of the securitized credits. So if you're buying a triple B, a double B, commercial mortgage, you better be careful about the level of due diligence that you're doing, because an asset like that, we would suggest, is potentially in the breakable category. So does that mean
2: that TCW is actively selling high-yield bonds, emerging market bonds, and uh, some lower-rated investment-grade bonds?
5: Right. So it's important to convey this, is that the statements I made were were generalizations, and there are sometimes particular differences. But as a general statement, we have de-emphasized the high-yield Uh, element in our portfolios for a significant period of time. We have emphasized the triple A in securitized credit and the investment grade. So I don't want to, you know, go too far and say that, you know, we wouldn't buy a high yield security in this type of environment. We would subject it to a level of due diligence and a level of skepticism that I think you're, that is supposed to be appropriate uh, late in a, uh, in a credit or asset price cycle.
1: Ted, just quickly, uh, the people that you speak with, do you feel that they are acting out of emotion or out of some kind of rational thought process?
6: Um,
5: I think it's actually mostly habit. Uh, People become habituated uh, to to taking um, risk late in the cycle. And I think an interesting uh, way to think about it is that uh, if you look at market-related measures of, of risk, so Uh, things like the VIX index, which measures stock market uh, implied volatility or stock market implied risk. There are other indices like the move index that measures that in treasuries. Until a few days ago, these indices were hovering at 25 years, 25 year lows. If market participants were being utterly rational, the only conclusion you could draw from that is that market participants must literally be saying that this is the safest investment environment in 25 years. If you think market participants are not Literally and rationally saying that, then what you're really observing is a very crowded trade um, in the sense that many, far too many people probably are over their skis as it relates to um, credit risk taking.
2: Tad Ravel, thank you so much for joining us. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for TCW, which oversees $201 billion and is based in Los Angeles. When a company defaults, typically it's because it has run out of money to pay its bills. But every so often, it means something very different. If you take a look at the credit default swaps of Hovnanian, which is New Jersey's biggest home builder, it looks like the company is about to default. If you look at the bonds, it looks like they are nowhere near defaulting. And underlying this is a hedge fund battle uh, that we want to illuminate with our own Shradar Nadarajan. He is a high yield debt and syndicated loan reporter for Bloomberg. He breaks a lot of- of news. He writes great articles. You can find them on the Bloomberg as well as Bloomberg.com. Um, Shree, can you just give us a sense what's going on here under the surface having to do with Havnanian credit default swaps and bonds?
6: I mean, it's one of those situations that just leaves a lot of people scratching their heads on how this is even allowed. Essentially, you have a company whose uh, sales are down, credit metrics are worsening, and they have a good chunk of debt that is about to mature. So they need to figure out a way how they can refinance their debt. And in walks in GSO, which is Blackstone's credit unit, ostensibly as the white knight offering what might seem like a good deal to the company. But there is this unusual provision. They want the company to be able to default on the credit default swaps, contract so that they get a payout on that. And that obviously has a lot of people on the other side of the trade very upset.
2: So basically, you have hundreds of millions of dollars at stake in the credit default swaps market that are totally independent of the company and the company's debt load. Like the company doesn't actually have to pay out in any of this, right? Uh, So why wouldn't the company say, we will take better financing terms, we're going to lower our interest rates, accept Blackstone's offer, and not make our payments quite on time so that a bunch of hedge funds are forced to pay out Blackstone, make them whole on the whole transaction, and everyone goes on their merry or not-so-merry way.
6: Because the guys on the other side are arguing that the company in this case would be intentionally interfering with another contract that they have with third parties. Because what GSO is doing is they're effectively buying up the default swaps, betting on a default while simultaneously knowing that they'll be able to force a default. And that doesn't smell right to a lot of people on the other side of the trade, who are obviously trying to protect their own relative value trades. Who's on the other side? You have, you have hedge funds like Solus, uh, CQS. Uh, there are a few other big names involved. Uh, uh, we, we know that the credit trades has involved people like Goldman, uh, Citadel, BlackRock, And you have uh, someone like an Apollo Global Management, their credit unit, which is on the same side as GSOs. They have been buying a lot of the swaps, so they will profit if there is a payout on those contracts.
1: But doesn't this just raise the very sort of philosophical issue of how a credit default swap works? Because a credit default swap, while it may not be directly tied to something that underlies it, like the value in this case of Hobnanian, It is a separate entity. So it's almost as if you're selling insurance for someone's automobile, and then the premium gets traded back and forth, and people say, I want that premium to go up, which means that you would get into an accident. So you have someone who's throwing tax on the road, hoping that the car will get into an accident because that will raise the premium, and then the insurance company is left holding the bag. Is that kind of the way this thing works?
6: It feels like, it. And, and, and the byproduct of this, this is a byproduct really of the growth we've seen in the credit default source market. These are essentially insurance contracts. You're buying the contracts just so that you're able to hedge your position. At least that was the original goal.
1: Right, but that's been teased out. In other words, the person who's buying that contract is now no longer really interested in the health of the underlying asset. All they're interested in is the value of the contract goes up or down, and that's something that is traded just as if it was a separate entity.
6: And that's an interesting point to make, because the last time something like this happened and, you know, Blackstone caught a lot of flack for it, and this happened with a Spanish gaming company, Blackstone made a very specific point. And I'd like to read out a part of their statement from back then. They said the losers on the other side of the trade were sophisticated hedge funds using credit default swaps to bet on the timing of a default. They were like gamblers betting on the over-under spread, but having having no interest in the outcome of the game. Of course, the guys on the other side would argue that that's absolutely not true, and and that's why we have this pitched battle right now.
1: Interesting story. It's and, a great story, and one that uh, I think will probably uh, continue. And uh, the lawyers will certainly make well, out with this.
2: I, I will just note that that uh, company that Shradar was talking about was Codere, and it was featured the whole affair and Blackstone's role, and it was featured on the John Stewart Show back in 2013. It was uh, that or perceived publicly as being rather ridiculous, given how divorced it was from, you know, the underlying.
1: Well, there's no ridiculous in, in trying to make money, right? I mean, it's all That's about right. whatever the opportunity presents itself. Thanks very much for enlightening us. Shudar Natarajan, he is our high-yield debt and syndicated loan reporter. And also my thanks to uh, our co- my colleague, uh, Lisa Abramowitz, co-author uh, of the piece. Thank you very much.
2: It looks like 21st Century Fox has yet another couple of suitors, Comcast and Verizon, evidently have looked into acquiring a big portion of 21st Century Fox. Swooping in after talks with Disney cooled off, and here to give us some more perspective is Gita Ranganathan, uh, who is a technology and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Gita, you know, I'm struck by the market action in response to this news. 21st Century Fox shares up four percent so far today in trading, uh, whereas Comcast shares down. Verizon also up. Why is this being viewed as a negative for Comcast, or is
7: it? So, um, so Lisa, Comcast has had um, a lot of regulatory struggles in the past. Um, They they definitely uh, suffered a severe setback when um, the DOJ basically thwarted their efforts to buy Time Warner Cable, and so I think the uh, regulatory threat is. Probably perceived as the biggest concern for Comcast, kind of trying to go after Fox, especially at this time. Um, this is really a very interesting time uh, when we see that the DOJ is kind of giving AT&T a hard time um, for its Time Warner acquisition, um, and, and obviously the name that's coming up a lot uh, in those talks is Comcast and how the DOJ is not very happy with, you know, the Comcast acquisition of NBC Universal. So adding more content obviously uh, could really set off a whole uh, streak of regulatory review.
1: Geeta, can we just go through maybe the four different categories of of major businesses for 21st Century Fox and why people would want them, such as Comcast or Verizon, even the the cable network programming? Who wants that and, and how valuable is it?
7: So, cable network programming—they have a whole bunch of different types of assets there. They have, um, you know, their regional sports networks as well as, you know, FS1, which is a national sports network. Now, that apparently is not up for sale. Their biggest um, portion of the cable network business, or or at least the one that is the most profitable, is Fox News Channel. That again is not up for sale. So, uh, so what we're left with is really um, a few general entertainment networks like. FX, um, you know, FX Movie Channel, some of the smaller brands, and then National Geographic. Um, now, th- this is what looks like is, um, you know, is, is what Fox is looking to put up for sale. Um, it, it could be complementary um, for, for, let's say, a Disney or a Comcast, uh, kind of adding that nature channel, adding a little bit of, um, you know, adding, uh, kind of deepening their entertainment um Profile, um, so that that that's the part of the business that they're willing to give up. And I think the most important part, from a cable networking standpoint, uh, which would be of interest, especially to Comcast and Disney, is their international portfolio of cable channels. And and Fox really is an absolute media behemoth in India, uh, with its ownership of Star India. It has about fifty-eight or fifty-nine regional channels. Uh, it's a media giant, um, and just that portion of the business alone should be worth about twelve to fifteen billion at least. It's a growing market as opposed to the US which is you know mature and, and possibly even in decline.
1: You think that would be of interest to John Malone and Liberty?
7: It could be. John Malone is always, always features right at the top and in, in media M&A. All
1: right, television. How about the
7: television business? So the television business is clearly not for sale. Uh, you know, from from a few different standpoints. First of all, um, Fox has a broadcast network, as well as the TV station business, and both Comcast and Disney have a significant broadcast presence. And just the FCC would not allow any single company to own two major broadcast networks. So the broadcast piece is going to remain with Fox, uh, not for sale. Um, the other Part of their business, which possibly is up for sale, is the film and the TV studio business, which is, you know, filmed entertainment. Uh, Now, this is an area that Fox has had a little bit of struggles with. So their TV production is actually pretty robust. They've produced like great hits like you know This Is Us and whatnot. Um, but on the film side, it's been a little bit more erratic. Um, they just don't have the franchises and the clout that, let's say, a Disney or a Comcast Universal studio has. And they've really struggled. And I think um, they, they've figured that it's going to take them some very, very significant investments to kind of revive that portion of their business. Uh, and so they're probably willing to uh, to to sell it and, and give it up to to somebody else, maybe a bigger yeah. a bigger rival. Gita, I don't understand the timing of
2: this. Why is twenty first century Fox right now looking to sell some of its assets?
7: I think the traditional media company has realized. Uh, media companies have realized that um, you know Netflix has and other digital companies have clearly upended the media landscape. Uh, it's time for these companies to kind of um, hone in on their, narrow themselves down, kind of ho- hone in on their core competencies. Fox probably realizes that, um, you know, its core competencies in the news and the sports side of the business, not so much the film, because it requires a lot of investments. Um, and, and they've kind of, they've, they've, they've made these investments. So they've, they've done it for National Geographic. They really haven't seen that translate into ratings yet. And so they probably kind of decided it's time to sell when, when they can still get a good price.
1: How about the direct broadcast satellite television?
7: So that is uh, really up in the air. Um, that is their uh, business, which is Sky, um, which is a direct um, to satellite um, kind of a pay TV business, distribution business in Europe. Um, they already own a 39% stake in Sky. And last at the end of last year, they made a $15 billion bid to go ahead and acquire the remaining 61% stake. Now, that deal has run into a lot of regulatory um, you know, obstacles. And they've obviously been frustrated by that. So I'm not really sure how that is going to play out. It's still under regulatory review. Fox believes that right. they can get the deal done by the middle of 2018. But again, a lot of uncertainty there. And they probably feel that it's best to kind of sell that to either Comcast or Disney or whoever's willing to buy um, and get rid of that regulatory uncertainty.
1: Thanks for joining us. Gita Raghunathan, our technology and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, the shares of 21st Century Fox are up 4 percent.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.